Hello. Bonjour. Hola. Salam alaikum. Jumbo. Tanastalin. Dumela. Salama. Mulibwanji. Howdy body. Saobona. Mulishani. Gunjan. Ola. Salam. My name is Kintwani Mwase, and the next episode is Start Something with Petra Leptiste. I guess the positives are really understanding a culture or starting to understand a culture. You know, we think that where we live is uh, perfect and that we can't do any wrong where we're from, blah, blah, blah. But then you go somewhere else and you say, wow, there's a completely different way of doing things. And it works and it works over there, you know. And then you look back at home and you're like, wait a second, why don't we do that? Good morning, good day, or good evening, and welcome to 54 Lights. This show is meant to shed light on undertold stories out of Africa. Our vision is to introduce you to some extraordinary people doing incredible things. I'm Petra Adrian Leptiste. Petra is Greek, actually, and it means rock or stone. And my dad liked the name, and my mom liked Adrian. And Adrian spelled A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E, or in French, Adrienne, I believe means dark beauty. I've known Petra for decades. We met in Montreal and worked somewhat side by side before she mysteriously disappeared. Well, not literally, of course, but she did move. And not just down the 401 either. She went to teach English in Japan. At the time, and up until recently actually, I had no idea what would possess someone to pick up and pack up to fly across the globe and teach English in a foreign land. What would possess someone to leave all they know, all the comforts of home, and find themselves in a new and otherwise lonely place? Now don't get me wrong, Japan is not cold or lonely, but any place that's foreign and that far away from home 
got to be a little bit lonely. But rather than shrink, she's thrived. Built a community, a network, and an otherwise amazing life. She now teaches in Abu Dhabi after 10 years in Japan. She's a corporate trainer, among other things, and celebrates her culture through an organization called Carifique. It highlights Afro-Caribbean culture. She's driven, brave, and a great representation of her rich heritage. Here, in part, is our conversation. So I have two uh, brothers, Sean and Shane, and we have a sister, and her name is Krista. So basically, it's four kids. Four kids. Okay. If I were to, yeah. if I were to ask them, um, I think mm-hmm. siblings is an interesting perspective. So I'm going to stick there. If I were, gonna, if I were to yeah. ask them whether or not Petra like the rock and dark beauty is a good fit yeah. for your name. What do you think they'd say? <laughs> I think they'd agree. I think they'd agree because I'm, I can be quite stubborn, Okay. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> but also I look at it as a positive mm-hmm. and maybe they would see this too when they're, you know, when they're actually, when they're not trying to make fun of me. So, right. you know, they, they'd probably say that, yes, as a rock, rocks could move also. Yeah. They withstand a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. So, It's a yeah. good thing. It's a so good I, thing. Yeah, it's a good thing. Uh, and and yeah. so, it, it, you know, in the same respect for yourself, when you look at that, I don't know if you've ever thought of it, but do you, do you mm-hmm. see yourself as a rock do you you're obviously beautiful but i mean do you do you see yourself as that and have you always felt that way no i haven't so thinking of the positives of rock is actually very recent i would say maybe in the past year or two because like i i work in abu dhabi and uh my students, they have very interesting names that are related generally, not always, but generally related to religion. And they asked me what my name meant because they, you know, because they know it in Arabic as, as Batra, which is rock, but it's also basically the name of the city in Jordan. Mm-hmm. So they're like, what? Like, how are you named after rock, miss? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I had to try and come up quickly with something positive to describe myself. And then they were, they were impressed. So yeah. I was like, okay, let me run with this. So that's kind of how I see it. I just, I guess when I was younger, I didn't like my name because I went to a predominantly Greek uh, high school okay. in Montreal. And it's a Greek name. It just means rock. Yeah. And I used to be called Rockhead, just rock. Um, what's the other one? Because of the gas station Petro Canada, I was Petra Canada. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> creative, I really creative. Know Petras. Yeah, creative. Hmm. Yeah. So I just was like, this is a really annoying name. That's but funny. I kind of liked it. Deep down, I know I liked it because I just thought it, it sounded nice. But yeah, that, that's it. But yeah, I, I now appreciate my name. You, you, you mentioned that you're a teacher um, in Abu Dhabi, but let's, let's take maybe a couple steps yeah. back. Yeah. What, like, what yeah. have you been up to? What, are you, what have you been doing? Wow. 
Okay, well, okay, you left we Montreal met way yeah. back at yeah. the bank. Yeah. I had one of my childhood friends tell me that she had gone to Japan to right. teach English. And I was like, Japan? Like, why? You know, so she told me the salary, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so at that time, it was it was pretty good, you know, compared to what we were making at the bank. And I was like, okay, I don't know anything about Japan. Like, I wasn't into um, anime back then or any of that. I, I knew where Japan was. I knew yeah. they spoke Japanese. I knew they weren't Chinese, and that's it. Not much more. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I applied, and um, I remember crying on the plane as I was going there and uh, thinking that I was crazy. And this was back in the day. This was before internet like say high speed internet was cheap so i didn't have an internet connection i was using phone the phone phone cards and like yeah basic i would go to the internet cafe once a week to check my emails right once a week <laughs> yes well wow. and, lo and look now now we're family. doing a whatsapp call like a half a world exactly. away <laughs> basically exactly so so japan i was so that was the first year i was there it was a. It was awkward for me. So that, that, was, that's pretty intense to to go. You, you weren't going to Europe, yeah. you know, which is a. Uh, not to say that Europe is is uh, better than Japan, but I'm just saying it's it's closer <laughs> in proximity. So true. So, yeah. how did your family react before you go on? I just want to know how did your family react <laughs> to this? Because I know I knowing you, I was I was a little yeah. like, oh, Japan, like that's that's far, <laughs> you right. know. My, I remember my, my dad, my, my, he passed away. Uh, my late father, he was all for it. He was like, yes. <laughs> he's like, we're going to visit you. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so he's like, just, he's like, go anywhere, go anywhere and we'll visit you. And yeah, he was like totally fine with it. And my mom, she was a complete opposite. She was like, nah, like <laughs> why Japan? Yeah. Why so far? Why for a year? This, you know, she's like, I understand, you know, you want to, you know, you want to travel. She goes, that's fine. But like living. So I don't think she really said no, mm -hmm. but she was just not feeling it at all, at all. But again, you know, um, they, they wished me well and they did come to see me. They did visit me in the first, I think the first six months I was there, wow. they, they visited me Okay. and they loved it. Really? <laughs> Oh yeah, they loved it, and my mother even went back. <laughs> How long were you there? So I was there. The first time I was there was fifteen months. Then I went back to Montreal. I said, "Okay, I'm done. Like I'm done yeah. traveling, living, you know, whatever around the world." And uh, -uh. <laughs> I got the itch again. So about I stayed at the bank another maybe year and a half. Mm -hmm. And then I, I said, uh, I need to go back to Japan. Something was calling me back to Japan. I honestly don't know what. Wow. And then so if, so. if I fast forward, so you've been to Japan and now you're in Abu Dhabi? Well, yes. I would say that in 2011 was a very difficult year. First of all, the earthquake and tsunami had hit in March. Yeah. And where I was in Tokyo was affected by the earthquake. So we weren't affected by the tsunami directly. Mm. Uh, however, uh, emotionally, it was extremely traumatic. And I guess if they say people have PS P 
PTSD. Yeah, I had a little bit of that. I think a lot of people, like everyone, was affected emotionally by it, especially on the eastern coast of Japan. And that made me consider going back home. But I hadn't at that point. But it was just two other personal issues that had happened at home. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them being my, my father's uh, illness right. um, made me go back home to, to spend time with him. Mm -hmm. But I was still kind of connected to Japan. And I, after he passed, I went back to Japan just to see, you know, just to see if I was going to stay or not. Um, so I didn't end up staying much longer. That kind of pushed me to go back home to kind of say, I want to be home with family, see what happens, yeah, yeah. you know, and try something else. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I was home, I was trying to really figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I had been interested in the Middle East while I was in Japan, but I kind of put it off for a while because things were just going well. So in that time, I was doing some tours to Trinidad and Tobago mm -hmm. for Japanese people. Mm -hmm. And I also targeted some Americans. So I had some small tours going to Trinidad and Tobago for Carnival. Mm -hmm. And then uh, an opportunity came uh, for working in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So I answered some, some ads and I got interviews and I decided on Abu Dhabi. And I've been there for the past almost five years. Okay, that's amazing. Uh, I've got a, a as a sidebar. So, as a profession, you are a teacher. Is that yes? Is that, <laughs> so you're crazy. No, I mean it's uh, so that's weird crazy. to say it, but uh, I am. Okay, so you're a teacher. Uh, what ages are you? Yes. What ages are you teaching? I'm teaching high school right now. So that's, let's say, from 12 to 17. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask me just yeah. a, an ignorant question, but a curious one. A black woman is coming in uh, to uh, first a Japanese culture and then second to a Middle <laughs> Eastern culture and is taking on yeah. a position of authority. You're the classroom teacher. Yeah. Like, I don't know the dynamic. So can you, is, <laughs> does that, how is that dynamic? Let's put it that way. Interest, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, while I was in Japan, I was teaching adults, actually. Okay. So... I was, so the, the job that I held the longest, so say for about eight and a half years or so, um, I was, my title was a corporate trainer. Uh, so my job was to teach office people. It could be managers, it could be uh, secretaries, it could be, um, you know, the board, it could be like CEOs, all kinds of people in companies and corporate settings, how to conduct themselves in uh, in an international environment where English is spoken. So it wasn't necessarily like I was in a classroom. Okay. I would go to people's offices and they would have lessons with me during their break. They had lunch break or if it was after hours or maybe sometimes before they started their uh, work. Yeah. So it depended on the specific client. Sometimes there were smaller group classes, which were sometimes very awkward for them yeah. because they'd be with their boss. Yeah. <laughs> but most of the time it was one-on-one. -on -one. You know, one to one. Did you and, feel that you were? Uh, it, did you feel that you were it, like? W were you embraced in that role? Because I mean, that I, that's a different dynamic because you're going into a corporate culture. Yes, you know what I mean? Like I could imagine. It was amazing. 
it was amazing actually most of the time it was I would say the the most challenging times were when I was teaching men who probably thought they were much older than me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Apparently, like I don't look as I don't look that old. Mm-hmm. But I was teaching people who were about the same age as me, but mm-hmm. they somehow thought I was much younger, and they couldn't figure out why I was teaching them. Like, where's my experience? <laughs> yeah, all this? yeah. Like, <laughs> and the other thing was is that uh, the people who were clearly older than me. Um, sometimes, especially men, they had a hard time at first thinking that I was there to teach them their job and all this stuff, Right. you know, so I made it very clear that I'm just here to help you with how to convey messages in English. Quite a fun, I would say definitely more fun than I expected, um, in the sense that, yes, I was actually worried sometimes like, wow, you know, I'm in Japan in this culture that's very strict. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, when you're having these lessons, again, it wasn't like one lesson here, one lesson there. Like these would be contracts that might last maybe six months at a time. Yeah. Some might last, you know, uh, a month. Some would be re- reoccurring. So the longest uh, clients I had were five years, five, wow. six years seeing the same person weekly. You know, like there's I would say there is one of my clients who I still talk to. He, I consider him like my uncle. Is that, yeah, yeah, it's got, <laughs> it's got to be. Yeah, at seriously. That, at that level of involvement, you you build a relationship. Yes, definitely, definitely. So, so, so they. Y- yeah. You had, did you have any formal training in that respect, mm. or were you just sort of figuring it out as you went along? Well, this is the thing. So I don't know how teaching is now in Japan, but when I had applied back then, what they were looking for were teachers were people who had uh, an undergraduate degree mm-hmm. in any subject, right? So I have an undergraduate degree in like cell and molecular biology, and I had the work experience at the bank, right? Yeah. So they saw, they saw that, and that was fine. While I was in Japan, I think I mentioned before that I was kind of thinking about teaching them at least. Mm-hmm. So I decided that I wanted to do um, something called the CELTA, which is a Cambridge University um, uh, certificate that basically trains you on how to deliver, you know, lessons to adult learners of English. So I took that and that helped with getting jobs in the Middle East. So what compels a person to pick up, pack up, and move to foreign soil? One can only assume that it takes a very unique DNA type, and an even more unique set of skills just to imagine it. I spoke to Troy Pedden while I searched for some answers. Troy is the founder of Go Abroad, and a prominent voice in the field. His organization is at the forefront of both study and teaching abroad. Troy's vision and mission is an interesting one, especially given his background and beginnings. Here, in part, is our conversation. Please stay on the line while your call is completed. Long-distance charges may apply. Good morning. Good morning, Troy. How are you? 
Good, how are you? Not bad, thank you, not bad. Can you give me uh, your full name and where, where your family's from? So my full name is Troy Pedden. I was born in South Dakota and grew up in a small uh, farming town in rural Illinois. Can you, can you tell me about Go Abroad, what that, um, you know, organization is and, and, and your, um, I guess your mission with it? So I was the study abroad coordinator at the University of Colorado at Denver uh, 25 years ago. I was the first one. They had just opened an office. And so, um, you know, before that, students sort of, if they were to go abroad, they did it on their own or occasionally a faculty would take a group of students abroad. The year that we started Go Abroad, 1997, um, I was in a PhD program and I became aware of the internet. That same year, Council Travel, which was a subsidiary of CIEE, uh, got out of the publishing business. And prior to that, they had published these sort of guidebooks. And pre-internet, if a student wanted to go to go abroad or study abroad, they'd come into their international education office or to their advisor. They'd look through these books. Then they'd make a phone call or mail out a letter or wait for a, a paper application to come in the mail. So the timing of the council travel stopping uh, publishing these directories and the advent of the Internet um, was just an incredible window. And we, we created that site. We're now um, 22 years old and we, are, we have a one and a half million users every month. It's got a pretty big impact. That that footprint now, if you can, if you can give me some scope of of where those you say uh, those users, those are all um, or primarily um, students from the United States who are wishing to go abroad and to teach and to study, or to teach or to study or to internship or to mm-hmm. volunteer. Mm-hmm. It's uh, our broad category is meaningful travel. Sustainable travel, meaningful, immersive, cultural travel. I, I got sort of like maybe uh, one or two last questions for you, uh, Troy. One is sure. one is a little bit more specific about what you had mentioned about the you know your typical thirty-something-year-old female uh, as mm-hmm. as being sort of like a big demographic. Um, can mm-hmm. you can you describe to me in your words what like what's the DNA of of the people that are that are walking through your doors figuratively, of course, to, to enter into mm-hmm. these programs. Um, I'm, I'm thinking mm-hmm. specifically from a teaching perspective, but, uh, you know, feel free to answer just in general. Like what does that, what does that sure. person look like and what are they, what are they looking for? Yeah. So it, it, it's hard to describe and it's dangerous to, you know, to, uh, uh, categorize people based on their history and so on. But mm-hmm. what I'll tell you is when I visit, uh, inbound freshmen, university freshmen, and I ask them who intends on studying abroad, it's typically, it'll be 90% or more intend on studying abroad. So, you know, this generation wants to go abroad and they want to do something meaningful and it and i'm quite hopeful because it feels like this generation is more connected to experiences over material things than maybe since the 60s or something yeah so 
the interest is there for everyone. Now, who really who ends up going? You do have people who are really tuned into other cultures. So those people will often be the ones who who go. But I think you also get people who are just, um, you know, uh, frustrated with their track that you know the typical track in life or they start a job and they they re- they feel like it's unfulfilling and they want to do something more meaningful and and once people do go abroad especially when they're going to do something like volunteering abroad or where they're really immersed in the culture they typically will do that for the rest of their life it won't be a one-time thing they'll be back they'll stay connected to those communities for the rest of their lives but all of these things uh, tell you how important it is that we need to get everyone abroad. Yeah. The, you, you know, people need to have this experience, and including farmers, sons and daughters, and uh, kids from lower income and kids in the inner city. And everybody needs this experience, and it's it's these experiences that uh, keep us connected and, and, you know, create empathy and compassion for our fellow human beings. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for inviting me. So my name is Christine Dosty, and I'm originally from Rochester, New York, and now living in Whippy, Ontario. Take me back to um, the decision that went into you teaching. Uh, Where did you teach, first of all? And then what, what went into the decision for you to move to, uh, to that destination and teach there? Mm-hmm. It's um, 2002, I guess, before I left. And I was working as a paralegal in a law firm in Rochester, New York. And I had never been on a plane before. And I was 27 at the time. And I thought, how can this be that I've never been on a plane? So I went for a five-week backpacking trip by myself in Europe. And that was just sparked a whole new interest in me and curiosity in the world. And I couldn't think of anything else except how can I do this again, but get paid for it. And so after a long time researching when I probably should have been doing actual work, um, I kept discovering places like uh, Thailand, China, Korea would come up and they would pay your airfare. They would pay for a year of teaching, like housing, and it was a decent salary. Korea is what I landed on. And my initial thinking was, well, I can do anything for a year. So when you broached the subject to your family, what was, what was the reception? Um, not good. (laughs) They thought, well, they thought that I was a little, little bit of a lunatic when I went to Europe by myself for five weeks. My my mother had horrible images of I'd be dead in a ditch, you know, I'd get robbed, this and that. And uh, so to leave for a year, they they could not understand. No, Why did it have to be in Korea? I didn't know anything about Korea. I couldn't speak the language, you know, that how could I possibly do this? This is ridiculous. And only one person, my dad, sat through all of that and just said, you know what, go. Why wouldn't you go? Well, you only get one life too. I mean, what are you what are you gonna do? How long were you there for? 
ultimately, I was there for four years. When I first got there, um, it was shortly after 9-11, right? So it was mm-hmm. 2002. By 2003, I went in September, and it was still shaky over there. There were um, a lot of U.S. military And something had happened right before I arrived where a tank had accidentally killed two young Korean girls. Mm. And uh, so there was a lot of anti-Americanism that was happening while I was there. And that was intimidating. Um, So about eight months into it, I thought, well, this is it. I did my year. It was fun. And I'll go back home. But then I took a trip to meet uh, a friend of mine. And on the way home on the train, I met a French-Canadian man that, uh, that, that led ultimately to hanging around a little longer and uh, switched jobs and moved to cities closer to each other. And, and we ended up staying another three and a half years together. Wow. And, uh, and now... You know, I'm married to him and we have two kids. So right, right. It worked, it worked out okay. If, if I was to say you got to pick one thing, one highlight or low light, like aside from uh, meeting your husband, <laughs> what what would you answer? It'd be difficult to narrow it to one. So when so I started off at what they call a hagwon, which is an after school program, and it was from two in the afternoon to eight at night, and I got kids that were little kids up to high school kids, and that was fun. We basically played games so they can learn English. When I moved, I moved to a university Mm. because I have a master's degree, and that became uh, a whole other level of teaching, and I was also teaching adults and adult education in private. And so I liked the variety of being able to teach at the different levels and when you teach at the university, you also have pretty good time off from teaching, <laughs> yep, yep. which facilitated a lot of traveling in Asia, which probably was what helped stay the longest. But everybody was always eager, eager to learn. They wanted to learn English. They asked really fun questions. It was just a lot of having fun with the language. Cool. And and exploring it, you know, through the culture, and they would try to teach me Korean, and I would teach them English, and and uh, so that was definitely a highlight. You seem to be very proud of your of your Caribbean heritage. You celebrate it. You yeah. live it. You embody it. Tell me, tell me about about now yes. Petra making <laughs> making her footprint, you know, all over the world. Yes. It seems so. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, what had happened was in two thousand nine, um, I had the opportunity to go to Ghana because uh, I have some Ghanaian friends in Japan, and they had always talked about Ghana. They said, Petra, whenever you have the chance, come to Ghana. Yeah. So I was like, okay. And at that point, one of my friends was going. She was going to be there. So she said, you know, make your plans and, you know, we'll meet up and I'll, you know, take you around and everything. So that was my first trip to the motherland. First, yes. first time. And I'm telling you, to this day, like, it's it, earth shattering. Like, it, it just, it hit, it hit me that, wow, 
So all the stories that my family has talked about, you know, you know, or that we hear about, you know, slavery, about being pulled away from the African continent, uh, the food, the music. I was like, wait a minute, this is similar to what we have. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what my parents cook, what my grandparents cook, it's similar. And this is only one country. It's only Ghana, you know. So I felt this really powerful connection uh, to Ghana. And I made a deal with some women at one of the markets at the art center in, um, in Accra to buy shea butter, to buy black soap, and to buy jewelry and sell it in Japan. I didn't realize this at the time, but my father had just been diagnosed with uh, cancer. And that, uh, that was told, they told me when I was in Ghana. So... Somehow, in looking back, I realized that the other part of my entrepreneurial side was called Tokyo Trinbago. Trinbago was Trinidad and Tobago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wanted to be able to be closer to that side of me. At that point, I didn't say, oh, yeah, it's because my father has yeah, cancer. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> in hindsight, looking yeah. Back, it, you're right. In hindsight, definitely, it was that. So I, that's why I said, okay, I need people to understand that like some people would ask me, well, why did you promote Ghanaian stuff? I'm like, well, because that could be part of my history. Yeah, it's likely yeah. that my ancestors came from somewhere from there. on that coast. Yeah. So, yes. And I visited it. So I said, okay. And then with the Trinidadian side, I was like, you know, I love carnival. I love music. I love soca music. I love food, the food. I said, I want people to know about it. So it just kind of kept going i just step by step by step and i was uh the first i guess non-japanese person in japan to have what they call a band launch and that is something that happens before carnival where new costumes come out and it's like a fashion show uh <laughs> food events music so i had that in 2010 so wow that's years ago so that one was called um I can't remember what the event was called. <laughs> it was called uh, Trinidad Carnival Tokyo. Mm. Yes, it was in October, I remember. And it took me a few months to do it. And um, I got um, a band, Ronnie and Carol, from Trinidad. So Ronnie McIntosh came to Japan, and we had the event. And it was it was nice. It was big. It was, it was successful. So I did that. Yeah. And then um, after that, it was just, I did a lot more cooking classes. I was on TV nice. in Japan. <laughs> it's just weird like <laughs> looking back at all that but that country like gave me the push kind of show off my culture why teach mm, i teach why teach because it it pushes my curiosity it makes me want to learn more so that i don't make I don't get embarrassed. (laughs) What is it about your culture that you love the most and you celebrate the most? Mm. Hmm. I would celebrate, I like to celebrate the mixture of cultures. It shows up in the food, it shows up in how people look. So by looking at someone, you can't tell that, oh, they're from the Caribbean. They could be from anywhere. And the idea that we are very hardworking people, and um, a lot of immigrants over the years, you know, um, left the Caribbean, um, moved all over the world, and have this strong, you know, work ethic, and you know, expect that their children will do very well. 
it's very important uh, that people understand that they can't stereotype the Caribbean in general and they can't stereotype each of the Caribbean countries. So there you have it. The conversation continues. I'd like to thank all my guests for their participation and candor. If you could go anywhere, and you've traveled a lot now, so but if you could go anywhere for two weeks, vacation, where are you going? Um, wow. You know, I haven't been to Bali. And I, I, I'm sighing because I know you will go there, and I'm, like, dying to go to Bali. I'm dying to go to Bali. Remember, you can find us wherever you do your listening. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or even YouTube. Just search for 54 Lights. Listen, like, share. In the movie about your life, in the biopic, who plays Petra? Who's the lead? Gabrielle Union. Gabrielle Union. That's, that's amazing. I w- it's funny. I was just talking about her yesterday. So that's a great pick. Hello, English-speaking countries. Bonjour, French-speaking countries. Hola. Portuguese-speaking countries. Salam alaikum. Arabic-speaking countries. Jambo. Swahili-speaking countries. Tanastalin. Ethiopia's Amharic. Mulibwanji. Malawi's Chichewa. Haudebodi. Sierra Leone's Creole. Saobona. South Africa's Zulu, Mulishani, Zambia's Bemba, Gunjani, Zimbabwe's Indebele, Ola, Equatorial Guinea's Spanish, Salam, Eritrea's Music for this episode was composed, enjoyed, and used with permission by Anjo. Until we meet again. Thanks for listening. <laughs>